0: I'm Brianna Draxler.
1: And I'm Beth Bartel. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 10th, 2012. Coming up, we'll find out how science,
0: in the form of arts or music, can change the way people perceive our universe.
2: I'm Jeff Lieberman, and I believe that when we're all infants, we have an infinite sense of wonder around about everything around us. And I, I look to use art and technology in combination to uh, bring that back to us as adults.
1: A look at some of the recent news in science. To most of us, 8 plus 1 is 9. But to a group of scientists who have worked for the past six years to explore the frontiers of education, it may be a new way to teach science. The group began work in 2006 with support from the National Science Foundation and consists of 14 advisors, including Nobel laureate Leon Lederman. With 8 plus 1, the group recommends a shift from memorization-based and compartmentalized science to understanding scientific processes, the relationship between different scientific disciplines and the process of science itself. In fact, the plus 1 stands for inquiry, which the group says permeates all scientific thinking. The 8 in 8 plus 1 represents eight fundamental science concepts divided into two groups. One group addresses the question, what are things made of, and contains atoms, cells, and electromagnetic radiation. The other group addresses the question, how do systems interact and change, and contains evolution, forces, energy, conservation of mass and energy, and variation. The 8 plus 1 group, led by Michigan State University's William Schmidt, says 8 plus 1 fits within most uh, most school science standards and that it is a new way of teaching science, not a new curriculum. One of the strengths of the new system is that it encourages K-12 teachers to use the eight science concepts to build understanding within and between their courses. This may better prepare our next generation of scientists to work at the disciplinary edges, which is where, according to the group, today's frontiers in science often occur.
0: Scientists at Gila in Boulder have come up with a super-radiant laser that, when fully developed, will enhance science and technology that require precision timekeeping. Lasers are special for two reasons. A laser's light can be focused in a tight beam, and the color is very pure. But the light from HeLa's laser promises light that is 10,000 times purer than the light of an ordinary laser. In an ordinary laser, atoms are encouraged to emit light together as photons oscillate between two mirrors set a critical distance apart. Think of how a low E string on a guitar can cause another guitar's low E string to vibrate. Unfortunately, the resonator mirrors don't stay fixed a distance apart. Tiny vibrations in the mirrors, even thermal motion of the mirror's atoms, can spoil the color. The superradiant laser is not affected by minuscule length changes in the lasing cavity. Instead, a few photons that don't stick around in the laser chamber are encouraged to emit together using a second laser. And the electric field created by these few photons, maybe less than one photon on average, is used to keep the atoms emitting coherently. The synchronized atoms emit photons 10,000 times more often than they would alone, hence the name super-radiant. However, this is not the destructive light of an airborne laser weapon. It is about a million times dimmer than even a laser pointer. But the super-pure color of the super-radiant laser may be used to build more precise atomic clocks. That, in turn, will encourage better global positioning system performance, interferometers that measure the distance to astronomical objects, and new constraints on fundamental constants of the universe. The study was published in the April 5th issue of Nature. For more information, go to nist.gov.
1: Thanks to Jim Pullen for that report. For those who like to enjoy science live and in person, in Denver, mark your calendars for tonight at Denver's Cafe Sci, when CU neuroscientist Tor Wagner will explain why he's so fascinated by the power of the placebo effect. The idea that sugar-coated placebo pills can sometimes be as powerful as real drugs once was a target for ridicule, but science has documented countless examples where a sugar-coated pill, or a placebo surgery, or some other bluff has been just as effective as the quote real thing. Tor's work has focused on functional magnetic. Resonance images that show real changes in the brain tied to the placebo effect, and they help to explain why placebo can be a valuable ally in helping someone heal from a physical injury or in helping someone deal with issues ranging from pain to major mental illness. Denver's Cafe Psy meets at the Wincoop Brewing Company. The free talk starts at 6.30 p.m. in the large and comfortable first floor mercantile room and goes to 8 p.m.
0: Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Brianna Draxler. Our guest in studio today is a jack of all science trades, and many non science trades too, actually. Jeff Lieberman is a mechanical engineer, a design consultant, a photographer, composer, and sculptor. You may have seen him as the host of the Discovery Channel's Time Warp TV show, or giving his TEDx talk on science and spirituality at Cambridge. But the common thread that runs through Lieberman's various endeavors is using technology to challenge and shift how people see the world. Welcome to the studio, Jeff.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So while you were studying at MIT, you got degrees in physics, math, mechanical engineering, and media arts and sciences. What is it about science in all these various forms that you find so intriguing?
2: Well, part of it is also just being afraid to go into the real world (laughs) after school and just finding the next thing to to be interested in. What I always find is that the more you explore science or engineering, the more of a sense of wonder you gain for the subject. The more you actually understand the complexity that it takes to create a human being and the fact that the atoms in your body were in explosions of stars, the more that that actually lets... you let that simmer over time, the more your brain starts to sit in a state of wonder all the time. And this is something that anyone who's seen a two-year-old knows that sense of wonder because that two-year-old is wondrous about everything. They put everything in their mouth. They want to just explore the universe. And, you know, in some sense, we have that taught out of us over time. And I think, you know, being engaged in the arts and the sciences is, is a really deeply emotional and almost spiritual way to see our interconnectedness with all these other, what we think are external things in the universe.
0: Yeah. And at what point did you decide to take your scientific expertise out of the lab and into this world of art and music and other fields?
2: Um, It was almost kind of the opposite of that process, actually. I was really into the arts and and music and painting and that sort of thing from when I was three or four. Um, But I lived a double life where I was, you know, an artist in the evenings, you know, when I was six. It wasn't a career yet. Um, And school and my love for science and math had almost no intersection with that at all. And it took uh, until I got to grad school and worked at the Media Lab doing robotics where I started to see that I could use the science and engineering background to make these technologies that were fundamentally artistic and aesthetic, emotional experiences for people. And that's when a lot changed for me, because these these two worlds had been separate for 22 years.
0: And so much of your work now is in kinetic sculptures. What exactly is a kinetic sculpture?
2: A kinetic sculpture is a term, you know, I guess it came around maybe almost 100 years ago, just for any kind of sculpture that moves through time. You know the the standard forms of art that most people are aware of are paintings um, which don 't move through time, uh, music which moves through time obviously but is not uh, physically instantiated, uh, and most sculptures are static as well and so there's there 's been a movement for for many decades i 'm not doing anything new in that sense um, toward using the new technologies that come out. Uh, to as artistic expression, you know, and and all artists, uh, historically, if you look at the early artists and Leonardo da Vinci in the Renaissance, uh, he was a technologist, he was a scientist, there was an artificial separation that's come over those hundreds of years. But he did a lot of scientific research that influenced his art. I mean, finding the right beetle shell to grind to get the blue paint was that kind of modern technology. Now we have Arduinos, and we have motors and robots and sensors, and I'm just kind of doing the same thing, extending what used to be a pen and paper into what's modern technology.
0: So you've created a whole range of things, from a robotic flower garden that responds to human presence, to a robotic suit that can be worn to teach someone how to dance. So using these, what is the message you try to convey in your work?
2: Um, Really, it's it's less and less about a, a certain goal message that I'm getting, trying to get across and trying to have a certain response, and it's more just there are certain instinctual visions inside that I want to get out, that just have a natural force to get out. And I think most artists feel that compulsion to get their work out. Um, But early on, when I was just seeing the intersections between these worlds, I was really interested in how I loved and had an emotional connection to the sciences and math in a way that most people that are around me, I didn't see, you know, they, they felt they had to learn it to succeed in school... But I really loved this kind of stuff. And I started to think about ways that I could get across the, the love of that without having someone need to take five years of electromagnetism to understand what was going on. Because when you really start thinking about electromagnetism, it does get really beautiful, uh, but the math can get in the way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, one piece that comes to mind that I worked on uh, probably like seven years ago was called Lightbulb. And it's a levitating light bulb, and it's using electromagnetic feedback and sensors to actually stabilize something in midair. Uh, and it's also powering the light bulb wirelessly through the air. So these are two things that are, are pretty well documented and well known theoretically in science, uh, but the equations are massive. You know, to, to get an understanding and especially an emotional one out of the equations, it's very, it takes a lot of time. But if you walk up to a light bulb and it's floating in midair, you stop thinking for a couple seconds because you're, all of the rules that you know about the universe are broken. And you have that sense of wonder that a baby has about everything. And then your mind says, how is this working? And that's the time I feel like is worth introducing a science concept to somebody when they're in this state of total emotional receptivity and their mind is, is really clamoring to understand what's going on. And, you know, I think that stretches into science education as well. But that's, that's always been a really uh, deep part of the work for myself.
0: So it seems like there's two levels of appreciation for your art. First, just the visual like impact of what is going on here, and then the second level of trying to understand it more. Are you really trying to reach people at two different levels, or is it sort of trying to combine those into one?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question to answer, because as time goes on, it's more and more, there's a certain image that's inside that is just feels the need to get out. And I, I am almost, as time goes on, just learning how to get more out of the way of the process instead of trying to more actively guide the process, which has been actually usually what holds back the work. Um, I'm, I'm less interested in someone's need to understand the science though. I'm more interested in the fact that there's the potential for wonder in anything that you give enough attention to. And, it's, it's an easy way to use technology to instill those moments of wonder. You know, Arthur C. Clarke said any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that gets harder and harder as time goes on, because now we all have magic in our pockets. So we've got to make more new magic to kind of surprise people. But when you do so, you, you show someone that there's that moment of silence again, that there, there's always there and they can have that sense of wonder about everything.
0: KGNU, Boulder, Denver. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Brianna Draxler. We're speaking with Jeff Lieberman, who is not only a mechanical engineer, but also a musician. In fact, the last song we just heard was his. It's called Hear the Nothing from his musical duo, Klubik. So, your 2009 album is called Music for Nothing. What exactly do you mean with a title like that?
2: Wow. Well, first, I got to say, usually the title of an album is the last thing that you think about for for the production of an album. And, you know, you try to come up with some way that will bring people into the kind of space that you're exploring. And and I think for Eric, my my band partner and myself, uh, we've been more and more interested in emptiness, in silence. You know, we tend to be so distracted by everything that's happening, all the minuscule details of our lives and all the noise that's going on that we totally forget that there's silence underneath that all the time. And I think in some sense that's the root of a lot of the meditative traditions, and that's been more and more an interest to me over time. And so, for one, it's, it's, it was saying maybe, uh, and, I, and I must say I'm attributing meaning to something that might not have had meaning at the time, just like many artists do all the time. <laughs> um, but there's something to be said for it's not, the music is not trying to serve some other purpose beyond the music itself. It's not a goal to get somewhere else. It's just to have the experience of the music itself. And I think that's been always primary for, for me as a musician. The goal is to enter a mental space where you are totally one with the music that's being played. And there's, there's no longer really even a sense of being a performer playing the music. There's actually just the being of, of the whole activity as one. And at the end of the music, you kind of pop back into reality. And you say, what just happened? Oh, it was good. You know, it was good because I wasn't there. And I I think that's the kind of sense of nothingness that, that really interests me.
0: So you've also used your robotic skills in some of your musical projects. Um, one of my favorites is the Absolute Quartet. Can you tell us a little bit how that works and how the idea came about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Sorry, that's a bad pun. Um, Absolute Quartet was a, a commission from Absolute, the vodka company, who has a really good reputation over you know, almost 30 years for funding artists to to kind of just express themselves. And they were looking at the theme of artificial creativity and trying to have artists uh, propose pieces that would look at new technologies like artificial intelligence in in a creative sense. And my friend Dan Paluska and myself proposed this piece, Absolute Quartet, which is a music-making robot. And the way that it works is you walk up to a a piano keyboard and you play like a five or ten second melody. And just like, you know, Bach would take a five or ten second theme and a fugue and he'd make a whole fugue out of it, uh, we wrote some artificial intelligence routines that would take your five or ten second melody and turn it into a three-minute piece of music that's customized completely based on your input melody. So you you really feel like you're fundamentally part of a music-making experience. But it's played by three robots, and it's played by robots in a way that no human would ever be able to play. And the main instrument is this marimba that's, you know, it's a concert marimba. It's almost 16 feet wide. We had to custom pull it apart. And it's played by throwing these little, you know, rubber balls, like eight feet in the air that are all precisely aimed at the keys. And when you start thinking about how to solve all those problems, you know, most of the engineering is, is just getting one rubber ball to hit one note. Um, But when you see this all together, you know, you get a piece of music played and you see a thousand of these balls flying through the air, uh, playing your song, playing the notes that you just played. And so it's not just a kind of a, you know, miraculous thing to witness, but you realize that you were responsible for it.
0: And you're also the host of the show Time Warp on the Discovery Channel, where you use high-speed photography to show the impact of a boxer's punch or the explosion of an apple in super slow motion what can people learn by seeing these types of events from a different perspective?
2: I think they can learn that their senses are not giving them a real view of what's out there in reality. We have, we have senses that have evolved for our survival and they give us very, very narrow slits on the world. You know, The speeds that you can see is just one axis of the, of the world, and, and it's very limited. You don't see when you turn the lights on, you don't see the light spread through the room, but it is spreading through the room You know, a billion meters per second. Um, that happens in all these different dimensions, but I think when you, when you can create technologies that expand those perceptions, it becomes easier for people to understand that every window through which they see the world is a kind of an illusion. It's a way, it's, it's very useful for survival, but it has nothing to do with the reality that's out there.
0: And you, you seem to play on those illusions a lot in your work. Um, also working at the other end of the time spectrum with compression photography, speeding things up. Um, the recent music video you made for the band OK Go, where the dancers and passersby and sunsets are all happening simultaneously in this park in L.A., but at different speeds. Mm. Yet the singers are doing the lyrics of the song at normal speed how can you you know combine all those sets of times to make to make this one cohesive piece
2: um that was a really fun experience you know in the end we did one sing- you know a single camera shot that was 21 hours long and we had composed through that 21 hours okay this you know this 20 seconds is going to be in real time and then the 1 second after it is going to be in high speed you know ultra slow motion and then 3 hours they're going to stand still and we're going to compress that into 2 seconds and It was a lot of pre-planning to get that kind of thing to work out. And uh, then you, of course, had to get the singers to sing, you know, one-sixteenth as fast as they normally sing, so that when you speed up the footage, you'd actually be able to hear it. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So really, it just became, time itself became a new kind of canvas. You know, instead of using red or blue, you used four times faster or a hundred times slower, and that just became a new kind of creative access to create a piece.
0: And am I correct in understanding that this was a single shot that made this video? It
2: was a single shot. It's a, it's a little misleading because we had to use three different cameras for some of the different time scales. So it's not one single shot on one single camera and any kind of like extreme technical person will be, you know, mad that I say single shot. So I want to get that out there. <laughs> but Yes, we, you know, for 21 hours, we started right before sunset, and we ended at about 11 in the morning. And when you see the the members of OK go sleeping in sleeping bags while each one gets up for two hours to sing a single line, that's actually happening. That's actually where they slept.
0: Wow. And um, what has been your favorite project to work on in all these different media?
2: Oh, wow. Honestly, it's it's always changing and i guess the rule these days for me has been my favorite project is the one that i'm working on um more and more of my attention as time goes on uh leaves thinking about the stuff i've done in the past and just focuses on the thing that's right in front of me and so you know right now we just finished an installation in raleigh uh at the natural science museum there that's just going to open in, on april 20th and it's a uh, it's it was an amazing amount of fun. It was the largest piece I've ever worked on. It's 4,000-pound, 100-foot-long suspension sculpture in the atrium. Anyone in the Raleigh area should check it out in April. Um, and that was the, the most fun I've had at the time, and now we're proposing some new pieces for new museums, and, and just working on that is the most fun.
0: Okay, great. Why? Just to close this up, why do you think it's important for people to have this emotional connection to science or the universe they live in?
2: I think it's a funny thing to be in the in the first world these days, because we have so much. And, you know, in, if you look at the change in technology over even 200 years, we are, we've doubled our life expectancy, right? That's an amazing accomplishment. And we've got basically what we need. We have air and water, and we've got food and shelter and, and people are actually pretty unhappy. Um, the, the anxiety and stress and depression in the world. Uh, especially in the the States, have actually gone up over time as our technological advances have gone up. And that is a concern for me, understanding why that is. And I think it's because we've gotten so concerned about the future that we forget where we are and we kind of devalue the present moment. And and it's sometimes a rude awakening to realize that we spend 99% of our mental energy thinking about what's going to happen instead of what's happening in front of us. So I like to try to create... You know, little tiny experiences where people can come back to what's right in front of them and prioritize now
0: So if listeners want to find out more about you and your work do you have a website they can visit?
2: Uh, yeah, they can go to a site it's bea.st which is the word beast, there's no .com or anything just beast, okay. beast.
0: <laughs> Great, thanks so much for coming into the studio Jeff
2: Thanks a lot for having me
0: We've been speaking with Jeff Lieberman about how technological art and music can be used to change our perceptions of the world and of ourselves
1: that's all for this edition of how on earth our executive producer is joel parker this week's show was produced by brianna jack draxler and was engineered by jim pullen headline contributions by Shelley schlender and jim pullen
0: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Neil Young and Glubick.
1: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the
0: KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Beth Bartel.